Welcome to the Midwest Film Nerds Podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Willie. I'm Rick. I'm Nick. And uh, this week we're going to spend a little time talking about what we've been watching. We're going to discuss some film news from the past two weeks, I guess, kind of. And then uh, we're going to do a full film review and finally get into some food for thought provided by Willie. This week our full review is Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. Not to be confused with the other Paul The other Anderson. Paul Anderson, Paul W.S. Anderson, Anderson, whose latest film we will have a bonus episode for out on uh, Saturday or Sunday, sometime this weekend. Uh, that one was fun, but look for that. So, um, let's get right into what we've been watching. So, Willie, what you been watching? Um, I've been watching way too much TV lately. I watched the entire first season of American Horror Story. Starting with the first episode, I was on the fence about how I felt about it. Yeah. By the end of the season, I was still on the fence about how I felt about it. <laughs> so I have nothing to offer there. Um, okay. If you like David Lynch, you really like it. <laughs> if you don't like David Lynch, you probably won't like it. Because it's got that very David Lynch vibe. A little more mainstream than David Lynch stuff. A yeah. little bit. But there's... He was inspired. Let's be... Let's, whoever created the show was very inspired by his stuff so alright um Resident Evil Damnation the good new Resident Evil movie <laughs> and I say good only if you know the games like yeah. if, you, if you're going into this movie expecting for like like to enjoy it, it the storyline and whatnot, you're probably gonna be like I don't know what's happening cause you really need to know the games we should say that's direct to DVD release CG CG movie, release, the second yeah. one yeah but if you if you have any even a passing interest in the Resident Evil franchise it's worth a look um, and then the uh, Werner Herzog films, the documentaries, um, Grizzly Man, Into the Abyss, and I have not watched um, Cave of Forgotten Dreams yet, but that's next on my list. Alright. Because he's done a few documentaries now in a row, and if you haven't checked, if you haven't seen those, those are really good. Like, he, he does offer up his opinion and stuff, like, but they're not opinion pieces. Like, he pre- presents... He's not, he's not directing your opinion in any particular He's way. not doing Michael Moore. You know what okay. I mean? And, and love him or hate him, Michael Moore's movies are very much... Opi- I mean, obviously, they're opinionated. Like, there is a, a certain point or a stance he's trying to get across. Yeah. And some people like that. Some people don't. This this one, you, you, you kind of see where he's coming from with it, but he at least offers some of the opposite side. Like, we were talking about earlier, you're very wishy-washy with, like, Grizzly Man... Because I won't spoil everything about the story. Like, just watch the documentary. Don't even look him up on Wikipedia. Just go right into it blind if you can. Because I knew nothing about the man before. Yeah. Um, but you kind of get wishy washy on what you thought. Think about him. Like, mm-hmm. like is he totally nuts? Is he like a really really decent, you know, humane guy who really wants to do well for nature and animals and whatnot? I don't know. It's 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 cool the way that Herzog presents him, but. Um, yeah, those are cool. So, that's about it. Alright, sounds good. What about you, Rick? Uh, I just finished up a bunch of stuff, and recently I've started Newsroom. Okay. I'm kind of on the fence about it. Uh, for the most part, I like it. It has really awesome moments, but then there is kind of sporadic moments of cheese. Yeah. Which kind of take me out of it. I think when I talked about it a few weeks ago, I kind of said that I feel like I should list the show as a guilty pleasure, but I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely makes you feel a little shameless when yeah. watching it. Um, it. I think there's enough redeeming stuff in it, but it, it it feels horribly contrived at times, too. Yeah. But for the most part, I enjoy it. It's something I can watch pretty casually and not pay full attention to. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, that's why I like it. <laughs> I did that a few times, so. It's a fun show. Yeah, it is. 
Well, I had asked Tim and Alex because Tim and you were talking about it. Yeah. Why are you gonna watch season two? Like, are you are you into it enough to watch another season? Um, probably. Okay. I could I could see it, but I haven't finished season one. So yeah. So it, yeah. But it's thus far it's succeeded enough for you to actually consider sticking around. Yeah. That's Depending good. on where the story goes. Yeah, exactly. That's good. It, that could change, but sure, sure. That's right good. now it's it's. It's, it's still passing. there. It's yeah. still there. Right it's something to watch while Breaking Bad is not going to be back for a whole year. That's exactly how I feel. It's filling the void of <laughs> TV shows that are currently on air. So. Okay. All right, Nick? Uh, I just, on a whim the other night, took a crack at the pilot episode of The Killing, and I was I was pretty into it, considering I was like falling asleep when I started the episode, and by the end of the episode I was wide awake and I was ready to start the second episode, but it was nearly 3 in the morning and I was like, all right, I have to go to bed. But um, it was really good. I think it was it was cool. There were a lot of little clever twists in the narrative that kind of made you think one thing was going to happen and something else happened. All all in the pilot episode alone, it 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 definitely was a very good pilot. A lot of shows, a lot of great shows have really crappy pilots. Yeah. But this was actually a very strong pilot that unfurled the whole role of all the characters and it had a lot of them seemingly unrelated but by the end of the pilot episode you saw how everything was going to be related throughout the series and I thought that was really well done it was actually cool because it was directed by Patty Jenkins who was in line to direct Thor 2 for a while which I thought was cool and I knew she was a TV director so as soon as I saw in the opening credits that it was directed by her I paid extra attention to how it was directed and it was really really well done so it's still kind of a bummer she's not doing Thor 2 because it would have been cool to see what happened yeah but um, Zero Dark Thirty looks cool. It was good. That's Isn't, that's, oh no, Catherine that's, that's Kevin Bigelow. That's the other man. only for women some, director. For some reason, I I, I maybe that's why. Uh, Amy Heckerling, up. hello. Oh, excuse yeah. me. <laughs> Sorry, Kevin Bigelow. Zero Dark Thirty looks alright. Looks cool. We'll see. It's a pretty. We could end up reviewing that. It's a pretty uh, bare bones trailer. It's a lot of it's a lot of hints at what the movie's about. But I there's not a ton of footage, which I think is cool. It's kind of a teaser. I don't even think I watched it when. Whenever it was up on screen. There's really, like, no footage, at least okay. the one I've seen. Other than that, I don't, I don't think I've been watching anything else. I've... Mm, no. You've been did, filming stuff. Did we just watch something on Blu-ray? Did we get through? No. We got, like, highlights of Bronson. And Avengers. Uh, yeah. And Avengers. Avengers. No, there was... Friend of the, su- friend well, of the we've show. Been, we've been watching Strangers with Candy. We have yeah. yet to talk about this, actually. That's true. Cult favorite personal favorite of mine which is like such an old show looking back now it, it was it was old when I got into it and now it's like way old it feels very old too yeah certainly the 4x3 with like really like but it lends itself so well <laughs> to the series yeah it makes it it gives it that after school special feel yeah. that they were certainly going for such a such a great show yeah and I always I always am excited to meet fellow fans of the show whatever I do because they totally get that bizarre Really bizarre sense of humor. Probably the weirdest comedy I've ever watched. We need we need to get a good high res copy of Principal Blackman's picture and yeah. put it in as many places as we possibly can. I'd hang it all around my apartment. Yeah, in every room. Alrighty. Yeah. Um, I personally have been watching a lot of Friday Night Lights, which I know Rick is a, a pretty big fan of. Yes, indeed. I just got. I think we're about halfway through season two. Okay. How many seasons are there? There's five. Five. Um, season two. That's uh, when the writer strike. Is it? Yeah. 
Yeah, it must have. Yeah. Well, I don't. It's shorter than the first season, but I think that was kind of because ratings weren't as good as they wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. They went from twenty-two to fifteen, and then I think the last three seasons are thirteen episodes each. <clears throat> okay. But um, I have to say, my my one complaint, quote unquote, about the show is that I feel like in the first season, the character arcs were like on fast forward. Characters changed dramatically very quickly. Yeah. Which... It's weird for a TV show. Yeah. Like, the whole first season is actually a very succinct, like, well-rounded season. Could have ended and there. It, it, like, if, it, if they would have ended there, it would have been, it would have been like a Rubicon situation. I would have wanted more, but it was... The, the story was complete. Um, but I think... Season two, I guess, hasn't been so bad about that. Mm-hmm. But season one, it certainly felt like there were a lot of... There's one person, Jason Street, kind of has a reason to go through a dramatic change. Right. But everybody else, it feels like there's like an episode where they have a changing point. Like the, the, the switch gets flipped and then they're, you know, different or better or whatever it happens to be. But it's not... I mean, I guess it's not that big of a complaint. And I think in the larger scheme of things, it'll be interesting to see. Because, like, I'm trying to think of who I was thinking about. Like, Jason goes through a lot of change. I was like, where is he going to be at the end of five seasons? Right. So, I'm interested to see that. But Friday Night Lights, I don't care at all about football. I could care less about football. Fake football is apparently amazing because <laughs> that show, like, I know so much more about football now that I've been watching Friday Night Lights. That Maybe you'll start liking it. I, and I, you know, with the Lions not really sucking anymore, it's kind of like, you know, getting me a little bit interested. But Friday Night Lights is really, really good. And who's, your, who's your favorite character? Oh, without a doubt, Tim Riggins. Yep. Tim Riggins <laughs> is just like... Amazing. Tim Riggins, played by Taylor Kitsch uh, of John Carter fame. Or non-fame, I guess, but... In-fame. <laughs> yes, in-fame. <laughs> Un-fame. But... Or Battleship fame. Wait. Or X-Men Origins. <laughs> it's funny that... Because I've been hearing this one-sided from Rick for, like, five years. About yeah. Friday Night Lights. Like, dude, it's amazing. It's really it's, good. So it's, I've always been like, yeah, I'll, I'll get to it. I got it from Rick first, and then for some reason, John, my brother, started watching it in the middle of nowhere because he was bored and had Netflix or something. And then John was like, oh my god, it's really good. And then, like, one of the dudes on the Totally Rad show has been hyping that show since it was on the air. And so I was like, okay, finally, I'll give it a watch. And I don't regret it at all. It's really, really good. Have you guys yeah. seen the movie? I, we, I watched yeah. the movie right before we started. The movie's really good, too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Except for that horrible, horrible, horrible mullet that Garrett Hedlund has. But <laughs> yeah, he looks ridiculous. But to be fair, that was kind of like it that, makes sense for where they were. Yeah, because it's a period. Like yeah. yeah. But in any event, we can move on to some uh, some a lack of movie news. <laughs> First up on the docket, um, Len Wiseman, director of the Underworld series and Total Recall 2012 is going to be remaking The Mummy for summer 2014, written by Kurtzman and Orsi and Jeff Spates, or John Spates, John Spates of Prometheus fame. Probably the part of the Prometheus script that wasn't a bunch of questions. But what do you guys think about The Mummy? Did you care about the original... The original Mummy? No, like the... <laughs> yeah, the, the recent... Karloff, uh, our original <laughs> yeah. Mummy? Vehicle? The, the, we're, we're talking about a remake of a remake here. Does anybody care about The Mummy? 
The Brendan Fraser ones? Yes. Yeah, they're fun movies. They're yeah. Fun movies. The first one's pretty sweet. The second one is even pretty cool. And I never saw the third one because I was like... Pfft. Yeah, I didn't either. When I heard Maria Bello's English accent, I was like... Pfft. Yeah, I, I wasn't too I wasn't too keen on the I know it was a big hiss moment. <laughs> when I saw like Abominable Snowman, I'm like, eh, too much. Nope. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a series that's done very ridiculous things, but the first two are that felt too weird for me. They're like dragons in the trailer and like Sasquatches, and I'm like, what does this have to do with a mummy? <laughs> What's happening? Jet Li's jump kicking people. I'm like, nah. <laughs> I'm going to sign up. Maybe they were like, hey, let's keep Len Wiseman busy with movies that we don't care about remakes yeah, for. Yeah, it's, just it's so that. such a weird choice. Like, when I read that, I was like, check the date, make sure it wasn't April 1st. <laughs> okay. It's just weird. Well, it's even weirder because, like, we already have had a reinterpretation of the Mummy story that's been very action-heavy. What is Wiseman going to do? An action-heavy probably. It's probably going to be action-heavy, He's right? going to get those really artificial-looking shots that zoom around the room and, you know, look at all the do? mummies. Like, like, what you, back in sales is it going to be like an room. army of mummies? Is it going to be like basically underworld with mummies? Because that's really silly. Like, they walk like... I don't know. At the speed of smell. I don't like, think I've ever actually seen... <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually seen a Len Wiseman movie, so I suppose I can't really comment on that. the Underworlds? No. They're dumb. Oh, underworld, <laughs> Never saw underworld. Die Hard 4? No. It's dope. Underworld 1 is fun. <laughs> it's fun for what it is. It's Underworld not what? great. Underworld 1 is kind of fun for what it is. It's, I mean... It's okay. Compare it to its its contemporaries. It's, you know... Yeah. On Ultraviolet and Resident Evil. And it's a way better movie than any of those. It's I'm true. not saying it's a masterpiece. And, and it, it kind of was ahead of the whole, like, vampire fad. It was. And it did something kind of a little different. Kind of blade-ish, but well, still the the, the new vampire fad... There was yeah. kind of an old First vampire fad. Vampire yeah. Fan. And then even like even like a nineties sure. vampire fad with like Buffy and Interview with a Vampire, like Anne Rice kind of books and all that crap. But Those, yeah, that's that's, that's that's a fad that is like super like okay. cyclical but it's, like quickly. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, two years have passed since we've had a vampire craze, better start it up again. It's weird. It is weird, I never thought about that. You're totally right. But now it's like even bigger. Well, Twilight yeah. and Twilight, True, True Blood. Blood. Vampire Diaries. <laughs> sure. That's a big show. Beat that dog. I had a I had a middle aged man like get weirdly emotional about how much he loves vampire diaries. <laughs> that guy from the video store, that short uh what's his name? I don't know his name. We won't say Le- his name Le- on the podcast. But Ladon. <laughs> right? It might have been. Yeah. God. He got really weirdly emotional about the I remember show. this. So I haven't worked popular. there in a year and a half. I probably haven't seen him in at least two years, and I remember his name because of how much he's... He's a character. Swooned about He's a character. Yeah. But anyway, no, the vampire craze thing is... Anyway, Underworld's not that bad, is what I was trying okay. to say. Well, it's really not that bad. The second one is unbelievably bad, It's though. not <laughs> so... That one's not so good. But, uh, yeah. Well, maybe someday when I feel like getting up on my Underworld uh, knowledge... It's really not that worth it. Probably actually. not. So does anybody actually care about that? That's a big no for everybody about the mummy. The mummy, Rick. No, I care because yeah. I think it, I think it should not happen. Okay, I don't. I don't care if it happens. I won't go see it regardless. No. Yeah. I guess if it keeps Len Wiseman busy. If they told me some really cool horror horror director was doing a mummy remake, like a, like a creepy, scary, like trapped in the underground tomb with a killer mummy, that'd like, be awesome. Uh, Guillermo del Neil Toro Marshall. is the mummy. Give me I a Neil Marshall. Neil Marshall. Yeah. Give me a Neil Marshall. The movie. Descent. Give me a like. Give me a really gory, horrifying. Uh, Aha movie, like That'd be totally cool. down, totally down. If it was actually like a mummy, but yeah, like like Neil Marshall's version of the mummy would probably be sweet. It'd be awesome. We got claustrophobic and creepy and, and like, like really dark and mummy. Yeah, yeah, I would like that. Probably not CGI mummy. You hear that studio? <laughs> All right, you have a reckoning. 
Next up, kind of just a public service announcement, because, well, public service announcement for people like me who actually kind of care about the difference between IMAX and non-IMAX movies and LIMAXs and real IMAXs. Uh, Cloud Atlas, which we've spoken about the trailer before, is going to be remastered for IMAX. So, it's probably, I don't think it's coming to the Henry Ford, so we're not going to get, like, it's not going to be on film, it'll be a digital IMAX only. Mm-hmm. But it'll be, like, a different, like, I think the sound mix is going to be completely different. Obviously, the picture needs to be blown up a little bit. I mean, it looks so pretty, I can't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if if, you, if they're doing it right, and it's going to look well done, and not just like, hey, we threw this together real quick so we could say we were, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not just like... I mean, I don't know any of the technical specifications on how to do any of that, <laughs> as long as I can pretend I do, but if it's done right, I mean, the mo- the trailer looks cool enough to where I would want to see that on the biggest, coolest yeah. looking screen, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, it feels like it would fit that. Well, like, the only time that we've really seen something like that, where the movie wasn't shot in IMAX, but was like remastered specifically for it I think is probably Inception okay Inception was shot on 70mm film oh that worked so well in the IMAX and it looked beautiful on IMAX it, it wasn't like it, it wasn't like Star Trek which I didn't actually see in IMAX but I heard it was was it any I mean it did not look remotely like it was just so like a regular movie projection on IMAX what yeah. about Mission Impossible was that Mission Impossible had some sequences was shot actually in IMAX. It did. okay IMAX. I wasn't yeah. sure okay like in 70. so but yeah, I mean, I you buy stuff. I think Limax will be the way to go to see Cloud Atlas because it looks like one of those movies that'll just be really immersive. Visually retarded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's what we'll be, yeah, we'll we be seeing. We should watch the trailer for, so we can see it weigh in on this. We should. Um, afterwards. Yeah. It looks pretty. I assure you, it looks <laughs> pretty. All right. Um, up next, we reported on the speculation earlier, but. Uh, James Gunn is confirmed to not only direct but also rewrite the script that they have for Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. So, you know, I don't want to get too into it since we kind of already touched on it and we don't really know, we don't even have like a plot synopsis or what exactly is going to go down. But what do you guys think? James Gunn, director of Slither and Super. I haven't seen Super, I've heard some pretty mixed stuff on it. Super strange. I'm excited for James Gunn, the director of Slither. I'm not excited for James Gunn, the director of Super. So hopefully we get... The well, he seems, based on the little, the little snippets with him, he seems like he's really into it. And it seems like Joss is really into it, and Kevin Feige's really into it. So I'm cool with it. I mm-hmm. I guess him doing a, a rewrite of, of the script is okay, as long as he doesn't get too out of hand with it. I mean, if he wants to kind of tailor it to his vision, that's cool. As long as I hope he's just working with the writers. Let's not forget he he rewrote actually he wrote the script to the Dawn of the Dead remake, which was awesome. Yeah, yeah, that was so really good. I mean, so he, he knows how to put together a good yeah, movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he said he was really excited to do like something involving space. And I'm, you know, as invested as I am in Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm I'm feel okay about it so far. Once I get the plot synopsis, that's when I'll start to get yeah. either really excited or really nervous. But the concept art was awesome. So yeah. far, everybody's enthusiasm seems great. Uh, I think it, I think it's I think it's on the right track. Gun seems pretty into it. S- Slither's Slither Slit. Wow, Slither has like a really like. It's like a weird movie. It's a weird movie, but even like it's not a like super is 
very weird. Like you walk out of that movie feeling a little dirty, and you kind of do. Like it's it's that rare movie where you're like, I need to take a shower. Yeah, there's like like I think like that. his his aim with that movie I was I have to no, no morals. <laughs> That's his, why I don't need to take a shower very often. I'm like, I don't remember. It his, didn't bug me at all. His aim with Super was to make you feel weird and awkward about things, I think. And Slither's more along the lines of, like, taking a conventional thriller horror movie and being, like, over the top about it. Yeah, oh yeah. Weirdness. It's a throwback to some of those, like, old-school alien invasion movies yeah. on a bigger scale, yep. you know. And it's a lot of fun. I think, like, like I think the hu- he, he's going to do a similar thing for what Whedon did for Avengers in the sense of injecting that kind of humor and that wit into yeah. it. So it's not as... You know, not I, as, don't, I don't know what the, I can't pretend I know what the script is like right now, but my guess is it's probably in need of some injection of... Yeah. You know what I mean? A little bit more of that wit and that humor, and I think it'll it'll do well for it, because if they play it too straight... They don't even play it very straight in the comics, so if they play it too straight in the movie, it's going to come off horribly. I well, just hope he comes up with some really cool action pieces and... Uh, some real cool like team action sequences. Yeah, I, that, I mean it's probably in the core script, but I hope. Well, with with it brings some coolness and to with Joss being the Nolan slash Godfather of the cinematic universe phase two, I think he'll certainly be there to be like you have these cool opportunities in the scripts to do these awesome things. And Joss definitely knows how to direct space stuff. Yeah, because Serenity's action sequences are really cool. Absolutely. And they were friends before this, which means they they have a good report, which means he's really the communication will be. I mean, yeah. this is a whole other tangent, so I guess I probably shouldn't crack into it. He's awesome. <laughs> he's like really good at directing effects action. But when we were just watching the Avengers on Blu-ray the other day, I was noticing a lot of the hand-to-hand stuff is really clunky looking. The live, the live action action. Yeah, some of it's especially the the little fight between Loki and Thor up on Stark Tower. I was watching, and I was like. This doesn't do it for me at all. It just looks kind of... But all the shots, every single shot involving Iron Man in the air is awesome. Yeah. Anything aerial looks awesome in that movie. And, like, he really knows how to direct, like, effects action. But he's not directing this movie, so it doesn't matter. But it's just interesting how hopefully he can kind of... Because James Gunn's never directed, like, a big action anything before. Yeah. So hopefully Joss will be like... Here's how you shoot space stuff, and here's how you do cool digital zoom-ins. And I zoom think he'll, I think he'll be there I for that. If he, yeah. yeah, if he's helping him out in the editing or the in the in the pre-production phase, it'll it'll be actually be really beneficial for space. I would actually almost have rather for space had, as a whole. I would almost have rather had <laughs> yeah, Joss directing this one instead of the Avengers, but just because I know he would be sweet. But anyway, I like, I said, like I said, so. tangent. But it'll be cool to watch them collaborate because I think they're going to be. It would be really cool, too, if you brought in Drew Goddard to help kind of fluff out the script a little. Yeah. It would be sweet. But then you're going to have, like, seven writers in this thing. It'd be even really cooler if it really was like, cooler. hey, Nathan Fillion, come be in Guardians of the Galaxy. Who knows? Honestly, I don't think the odds are that bad. Unless Castle just the, dominates the schedule that's, so hard. That's the thing, is that he shoots Castle, like, ten months out of the year or something like that. Though. I mean, there was that one crazy year where Brad Pitt was shooting Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Ocean's 12 and Troy simultaneously, all three movies, at once. I'm like, if he can do that... Or we can go back even further and talk about Michael J. Fox shooting Family Ties and Back to the Future at the same time. There you go. But... Well, we could it's, do that. But it's possible, but Fillion's, Fillion's you know, yeah, he's in his, in his yeah, 40s. He's not quite as, he's probably not quite as spry as he used to be, but who knows? Hey, man, you can the, do it. The movie's still, you know, two years off at this point, so. Yeah. Anyway, fanboy, um, fanboy casting. 
All right, and then finally, um, I think there was just confirmation today that Rupert Wyatt is leaving Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Rupert Wyatt, who directed Rise of the Planet of the Apes, is leaving the sequel because he feels that the May May 2014 release date for the sequel is too early for him. We kind of just saw this happen with Gary Ross and The Hunger Games, Mm -hmm. which made sense to me. Who do they feel is Francis Lawrence? Francis Lawrence, director of Constantine, Water for Elephants, and uh, I Am Legend. Director of Two Thirds of I Am Legend. (laughs) Um, Or One Third. But. I don't know. It's. It's sad. Yeah. Because Rise of the Planet of the Apes was one of the biggest surprises. Yeah. and of of last year and the it's whole really good. like that movie without that director would have been very different. Dumbland. We would have had. <laughs> I, I think they would have been playing up the the James Franco and whatever her name is. Like, what is her name? I I don't remember, but I, I see where you're going with that. Like the romance would have been a bigger. Uh, yeah, and like it was totally not even about them with Rupert Wyatt, and it did that movie wonders. It was between the romance and, with Caesar and James Franco, weirdly enough. Like, yeah, yeah, which was you know the more not important one. Actual romance, by the way. If you haven't seen the movie and you're listening to this, they it's, don't. No, that doesn't it's, happen. It's more of a bromance. It's a bromance. Yes, it was. But, the, it was the romance between John Lithgow. Yes, John Lithgow and and the world. <laughs> So, uh, directors that they have on their short list for who they want to replace Wyatt include Matt Reeves, who did Cloverfield and Let Me In, also just confirmed in the same story that he's leaving the Twilight Zone movie that they want to do. Matt Reeves, out of, out of the guys you're about to name, Matt Reeves would be my number one. Okay. Like, Let me, guys? Let's go through the other ones. Guillermo del Toro of mm-hmm. Hellboy, The Orphanage, Pan La- Pan's Labyrinth. No. I love Guillermo, but he's not a right, right fit for that at all. Nope. Um, Jeff yeah. Jeff Nichols of a bunch of movies I've never heard of. Take Shelter. That's a he works with Michael Shannon on like every movie. Yeah, they're like boys. I don't know. Take Shelter is the one where Michael Shannon's going crazy. Go figure. Doesn't he? Okay. Movie? And he thinks like birds are gonna eat people. Or I don't know somewhere like that. And then finally, a director whose movie we are going to be reviewing next week: Ryan Johnson of Brick, The Brothers Fl- Bloom, and Looper fame. I, I almost want Ryan Johnson to stick to doing original, original stuff. Yeah. And Matt Reeves, Matt Reeves is definitely a good choice. I think he's a great choice. I really do. What else has the original director directed? Uh, Rupert, Rupert, Rupert Wyatt. Wyatt. I don't think he's done much. That's not... You can look it up real okay. quick. Salt. But... Um, yeah, Matt Reeves did a really good job with Cloverfield with... Um, with Balancing with with giving gi- maintaining that human element to all the sci-fi yeah. goings on, yeah. And I think that that sentimentality, that same approach, would work well for a sequel because that's a big part of the first one. Well, I wonder even what the sequel would be like. I wonder if Dawn of the Planet of the Apes will be more along the lines of like pockets of human resistance are still alive, and that could even fit into a Cloverfield kind of vibe. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want it to be a war movie. I'm really, yeah, like, I don't like, Normally, I love that kind of stuff. Like that's the natural next step. It's like, oh, it's an all-out war. But the reason why Planet of the Apes, why Rise of the Planet of the Apes works so well, is because it's a very intimate story. It really yeah. is. It's it doesn't get huge in its scope until like the last fifteen it's, minutes. It's a microscopic look at this huge idea. It is, and and I like that. And I want to see. Obviously, the threat level is going to be higher because of the events of the first movie, 
and humans are going to be in a worse position. But I would still like to get that that same kind of like you said microscopic view of mm-hmm. like a very very singular view of what of the bigger picture you know told from a very very intimate perspective yeah and like we don't even really know how far ahead they're going or how not far ahead they're going it could like i don't think it's going to be a direct continuation i don't see the value in that but yeah and i i mean i'd be okay with with them cuz they hint at a space shuttle in the first one yeah i'd be okay with them not doing a straight up adaptation of the original cuz we've seen it done before yeah but something along the lines of instead of like going through a time jump or whatever, they just crash land on Earth like after a year or so, and things are starting to shift and they're like, "What's going on?" Like you know, maybe they meet up with a human resistance yeah. thing. I don't know. There's so many ideas. Well, you, Nick, Rick, any thoughts? I'm optimistic, but cautious, I guess, because the first one was such a surprise, and I think that. Nobody was expecting it, and yeah. now I kind of think they might think, oh, we have this cool property on our hands, and they might just tear it to shreds in an effort to figure out what they want to do with it. Well, the directors they're looking at doesn't make me th- At least it's not Len Wiseman, apparently. Right. But, I mean, I think they're trying to foster it into the direction it was going. Yeah. I think, because, I think Rupert Wyatt had kind had like three, he had like a trilogy planned out. It's interesting that he departed, did he actually depart of his own volition, or is that just the story we're being fed? The story that's being fed to us is that he thought the release date that's two years in the future is too early. That's weird, considering two years is a long time. Yeah, like I think he, this, the, he had at least the same amount of lead time for Rise. It makes me wonder if there's just if there might just be not some, getting along. Yeah, some politics. He and, wants to take it one way, they want to take it another, and so they just came to the terms. How about you blame us, and we'll just go our separate ways? <laughs> or maybe the guy it's just sad. doesn't want to do a sequel. You know what I mean? Maybe he doesn't want to like jade the people. That, That's true. You know what I mean? Maybe he doesn't want to make anybody jaded like, oh, I'm too good for Planet of the Apes now. But yeah. maybe he just doesn't interested in doing a sequel. You know what I mean? I mean, he doesn't even have another movie lined up right now between the two. He wasn't like, I'm going to take... He wasn't like Nolan. He's going to retire. He's going to go out on a good note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, all right, I'm done. See you guys. <clears throat> but I don't know. It's sad, but I guess it's not completely... You know, unless they call up Uwe Boll and are like, hey. I don't think that's going to happen. You want to direct Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? And then... Was it a video game? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I think we can move into our full review. That's um, it for movie news, huh? Yeah, there's really nothing. I mean, there's things we could talk about, but it would be kind of stupid. <laughs> I mean, I there's a lot of speculation about things that nobody care about and cares about, and you know, we try to avoid as much it's, silly internet speculation as possible. Yeah, it's like so much of it. I was I, for the last episode that we did, I was contemplating including the Vigo Mortensen news, and then by the time we would have recorded another episode, it would have been completely debunked. It would have been, yeah, untrue. So you know, true, 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 true. True that. Um, True that. Alright. So, our full review this week is on The Master, which is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, Joaquin Phoenix, and Amy Adams. And a quick synopsis, courtesy of IMDb.com. A naval veteran arrives home from war unsettled and uncertain of his future until he is tantalized by the cause and its charismatic leader. That's about all you get from IMDb. What is up with these weird synopsis lately? Like, I swear, well, everyone you read off, I'm like, 
for some reason that doesn't capture anything about the movie. <laughs> I well, I mean, IMDb could be kind of user affected. Yeah, definitely. It's, I don't know. It's really weird. I don't see the point of you know not putting it's, the generalized. I think yeah, because story's pretty loose, but That's we can. What I would say. Um, so we'll we'll mark spoilers clearly when we get to that. But as for now, um, let's talk about Paul Thomas Paul Thomas Anderson real quick and everybody's kind of standings with his filmography. Paul Thomas Anderson, director of Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, uh, There Will Be Blood, and Hard Eights. Hard Eights. Hard Eights and Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. So. I personally have only seen There Will Be Blood before this film. I thought There Will Be Blood was very, very good, along with, you know, everybody who gave it an Oscar. And <laughs> <laughs> All those guys. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, very, very well-directed, obviously. And he certainly has a, a... He has sensibilities that are unique to him. And, and so... And that's certainly demonstrated in, in There Will Be Blood, and also to an extent in The Master, but we'll get to that. What about you guys? I love Paul Thomas Anderson. He's <laughs> always been top of my list. Okay. Mine too. Um, pretty much all of his films. I, I feel he's never done any wrong. No. Yeah. <laughs> Very little, little to no wrong. Yeah. I don't have as much, and the only, as much like knowledge of... You know, I, I've seen Boogie Nights... Which I really, really liked. Mm-hmm. Boogie Nights is one of those awesome, like, fall from grace movies. Like, the rise and fall of a character. And yeah. I love those movies. Like, Blow. It's pretty, awesome. much, that's pretty much all of his movies. Um, kind of. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. and I've seen um, Magnolia. It's been a long time. But I remember, like, I remember for some reason watching when Magnolia was coming out, there were weird infomercials on at, like, 3 a.m. with Tom Cruise in character doing the infomercial. <laughs> and I saw it and I'm like, is that Tom Cruise or they hire some dude that looks a lot like him to like try and sell this product and then I kind of figured it out and I was like I gotta see this movie He's now so good you know and I saw it and, and it's very very cool it's super weird it's not for everybody but it's <laughs> Magnolia cool. yeah I think it's for everyone <laughs> <laughs> Magnolia is actually I mean it's really straightforward until literally the final like 10 minutes of the movie and yeah. something happens that makes you just go but I think I think ninety percent of people that that's all they remember. Well, you know what I'm saying? Like that they just be like, the movie's oh, just that's so movie. dense. I feel like people, at least in my experience with the movie renting public over the course of seven years at Family Video, tells me that the average person would be like within the first even the first scene, they'd be like, oh, what? Like, <laughs> so yeah. much gets thrown at you in I his think movies. It's dense for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of characters. It's three hours long. And it still feels really it's dense. Emotionally exhausting. And yeah, after that movie, I don't want to do anything because I just need to like mentally and emotionally process everything that I just yeah. witnessed. I mean, it's even you know repeat viewings when you yeah. know everything that happens. You're still that that is one of the. I mean, a lot of movies like get to me emotionally. I think we had we had this on a food for thought before, like mm-hmm. talking about yeah. that made you uh, want to cry or cry, whatever. But this Magnolia is definitely one of the ones where I felt like I was stripped raw as a human being and like left exposed for the world even watching it by yourself or with with like someone you know really well it's just so revealing of the worst aspects of humanity yeah (laughs) so I mean as far as like all of us then I guess we're all like whether we've seen one two or all of his movies we're all in agreement we've liked what we've seen yeah at least up until this point amazing yeah incredible director he's not only not only for his his like 
most of the time, ex- well, excluding the master, I'm sure we'll get into it. But his his pacing is always really awesome. Yeah. But his blocking and his camera camera movement is always like so cool in his movies and so key. But you can have a director who does all that right and doesn't pr- deliver on a performance level. But his performances, he draws out of his actors. Yeah. I mean, it helps that he pads his movies with like all of the best actors in the world right now. Sure, sure. But he he like molds them in such a way that it just they're amazing and his universe he's created they're all just ridiculously good performances and they're always well crafted stories too yeah yeah, yeah I mean I, really I know like rounded. Boogie Nights is awesome like, Boogie Nights is really awesome it's, it's and so, that's like my least favorite but it's so good yeah and I mean I think out of that and Magnolia I mean I, I, I'd have to watch Magnolia again because like I said I was, I was real young but I mean that's my favorite as of right now I guess but um Boogie Nights yeah, Boogie Nights. But I mean, he's 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 one of those guys where like he's that one of those younger. I mean, he's kind of a younger guy. I mean, he's not. You know, he directed his forties. I right? think he was twenty five when he directed Boogie Nights. So he's. He, I mean, he's he's up there like with Aronofsky's age and stuff like that. Like I mean, him and Aronofsky and forty two and David Fincher and like those guys are kind of those young same generation of uh, sure yeah. those guys that like started off with these really interesting first films and then like they've really built this incredible filmography over the years and I, I think those guys are kind of the, the holy trinity of that and, and I guess Nolan now too you know I mean yeah. Nolan's up there too yeah. I think it took people a little bit longer to catch on to Nolan yeah because he had to make that mainstream Batman yeah. movie for people to recognize his older work but yeah. those guys are like I mean he's right up there with the rest yeah, of those like guys yeah like David Fincher mm-hmm. started out with like Alien 3 and then like, no I'm just kidding we don't, <laughs> we, don't, we don't ever speak those words on this podcast okay so We've waxed poetic about Paul Thomas Anderson. What do we feel about... Oh, wait. Cool. Okay. I have a, a cool story about Paul Thomas. Well, not like I, I know him, but <laughs> there's a cool story about Paul Thomas Anderson, which is kind of inspiring to potential filmmakers. I mean, obviously, he's kind of one in a million of people who can show up at 25 years old and write and direct a movie like Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. But uh, when he was in college, he was uh, he was at NYU for like film school, and I he dropped out, I think, after like a week or something like that because... He he had to turn in a screen a screenplay for like an assignment and he he copied somebody famous some like award winning hold on I have IMDb open he uh, for the sake of the story though he copied somebody's somebody's work which was like this amazing whatever and he got a C on it I think or a D and so he immediately dropped out of film school and just went to like make movies <laughs> oh yeah. For the brief time he was at NYU Film School, he handed in some of Pulitzer Prize winner David Mamet's work as his own. When he got it back with a C grade, he decided to leave. <laughs> it says he dropped out of NYU's film program after two days. He oh got his gosh. tuition back and he used the money to make cigarettes and coffee, which I guess was his first uh, short. First movie. Yeah. All right, so. That's pretty awesome, though, I think. We've, yeah. We've got the master, we've got. A bunch of fantastic actors. Joaquin Phoenix back from his exile, <laughs> <laughs> drug-addled exile. exile. Time on Elba. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and you know Philip Seymour Hoffman, fantastic as usual. Oh, Amy regular. Adams. Is Philip Seymour Hoffman in in every? He's not in Hard Eights. Um, I don't. Know. That's the one I actually haven't seen, but I almost. They're frequent collaborators. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's in. He's in all. Of, oh no, he's, he's not, not in, in Blood. Yeah, that's the only. Weirdly, he was probably like a boom operator or something. <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, Jesse Plemons of Breaking Bad and Friday Night Lights fame. Yep. Always on Friday Night Lights. Todd. Yeah, <laughs> Todd and and Landry Clark. He does look a lot like Philip Seymour Hoffman. He does. I never plays it until I saw in this movie. That was, was cool. perfect. 
because um, he plays Philip Seymour Hoffman's character's son, son. in the master right? in the master yeah actually in Breaking Bad no I'm just kidding um, <laughs> little do we know but so so general thoughts on the master let's go to somebody who is you know a big fan of Paul Thomas Anderson so one of you two Rick or Nick you start alright uh, I liked it uh, I don't know to what degree yet because I'm still processing it he's the only, I think the only movie of his where I well no Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood were movies where as soon as they were over I immediately knew who I, how I felt about the movie at least in general and then I kind of narrowed it from there but with this one uh, it's definitely going to require a lot more thought because I think I had mentioned this earlier in the night but I think there's these weird giant gaps in the in the movie of these huge passages of time that we have no indicator of how long they are or yeah. what happened and so I think that there's a lot that fell between the cracks that is kind of left up to the viewer should they want to pursue it or if they even subscribe to that theory but I thought it was I thought it was cool I mean it starts really bold and uh, it gets interesting it does feel a lot like a Terrence Malick movie at times but um, it's definitely a PTA movie I uh, I liked it the performances I thought were really good uh, the story is definitely loose and it's a character character stu- study which I'm totally okay with those are the kind of movies I really I really dig um I'm I'm down to see it again. I don't know about in the theater, at least not the main, because it's pretty uncomfortable. But uh, you know, I liked it. Okay. I think if I was if I was gonna rank it right now off the top of my head, it, it would be near the bottom. But with a with a pedigree like his, it's hard to it's hard to breach the top yeah the top ranks. But uh, I thought it was good. It's not quite the follow up to There Will Be Blood. I think a lot of people would are gonna be expecting, but. I have a feeling that somewhere Paul Thomas Anderson's really satisfied with it, so... Okay. What do you think, Rick? I, I feel pretty supremely disappointed. <laughs> Whoa. Um, only because with I sour had, cream? I had... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Only because I had such high expectations for it, because Paul Thomas Anderson is yeah. one I really admire. All of his work. Um, I went in with really high expectations, especially knowing that it's going to be a character piece, which I think he normally excels at. Yeah. Um... I think it has aspects that work in it, but for the most part, a lot of it's just kind of loose in the sense that his other films aren't. Um, some things kind of, like Nick was saying, take more creative liberty than they need to. Mm-hmm. With timing. Um, yeah, I don't really know. I still, I'm still trying to process yeah. it. But I, yeah, I do know that as a... On the whole, it's visually stunning. It's beautiful, the whole film. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the shots of the water, everything on the boat, mm-hmm. uh, the use of natural light, everything was really well-crafted. But I felt like the story left a lot to be desired. It's pretty much plotless. Yeah. yeah. And which I'm normally fine with. Um, but something still felt just kind of missing. I think I'll skip over you, Willie, for a minute. I, m- my biggest problem with the movie is that I don't feel as though he knew what he wanted to do with it, what he wanted to get across. Because the movie, the cause, as I said in the, the synopsis, is a loose parallel to Scientology. And I don't know if he, like, sat down to be like, I hate Scientology, let's kind of show some of the ugliness of it. 
I don't know if that's what he was trying to do, or if it was like... If that's what he's trying to do, it doesn't even seem all that ugly to me, even after I watched the movie. Like, right. Yeah. I don't I Nothing that, that they do in the movie though. seems... Does that, did you guys ever feel like super uber uncomfortable with the stuff they were doing? I mean, I do, but we need to wait till we jump yeah, into spoilers. Yeah, okay, we'll, right. we'll save that for spoilers. But I mean, even as a character study, Joaquin Phoenix, his character is, is interesting in a lot of different ways. And the affectations that Joaquin Phoenix puts on to portray this person are, you know he's so strange and off-putting and like uncomfortable that it's certainly a commanding presence but I don't feel like and the same like Nick you brought up that Philip Seymour Hoffman is kind of like the exact opposite of the character like the two characters are the yin and yang to each other and I suppose that's the most interesting aspect of the movie but I don't feel as though I walked out of the movie feeling like I had learned something about them necessarily or that I that there was a larger theme or general point to really get across in the end. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of almost voyeuristic in a way where you're there for the experience yeah. but you don't walk away with any real sense of how either character grew or changed or there's really no moral. Like when you walk away from there will be blood, you know that like, okay, greed is bad. Yeah. And like Yep. And money and power drive people crazy. Yeah. And although I guess I don't know, I can't really think of anything you take away from Magnolia in terms of like. Well, but there's so much that happens. Yeah, there's it's just way too layered. There's too many people. Yeah. Well, that's really what are what are your thoughts on the master? Um, it's it is a weird movie to talk about right afterwards because there's there's like nothing going on, but there's a lot going on at the same time. Yeah. Like your brain's trying to process what you saw, even though you. It's not like there was a ton of stuff going. I don't know. It, it's one of those movies that it has all the right ingredients, like great director, fantastic cast. Uh, it looks great. The soundtrack is passable. Nothing stood out to me, but yeah. it was it was fine. Every element of it is there, but it it, it just doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. I mean, I I like. I, I there was no plot. I mean, not no real actual plot. Um, there's very little actual character development with with most yeah. of the characters, um, they, except for Joaquin's character kind of does even... some flip flopping. But whatever, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, the one thing I did really like about this, and I I wanted to take something positive from this, and I I feel this way about it is the chemistry between Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman is really really good. Yeah. The on screen chemistry is great, and when it's just those two on screen together. I'm fascinated by what's going on. When it's anybody else is involved, I'm like, eh, you know. But those two together are really, really good, and and I like the relationship of the characters as well. I like the determination of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character to get what he wants out of Joaquin Phoenix's character, and I like the stubbornness of Joaquin Phoenix's character, <laughs> yeah. and and the eerie calmness of Philip Seymour Hoffman, and the eerie like anger and craziness of of Phoenix. It, that, that's a cool mesh, you know. So those two together are fantastic, and that's the best part of this movie is those two on screen yeah. and the really pretty nature shots. Yeah. Which are few and far between, unfortunately. There should be more. <laughs> but if it was just Philip Seymour Hoffman and 
Joaquin Phoenix walking around in nature together, like talking. That would be a movie. Grizzly men. You'd have a winner on your hands right there. That would be amazing. So. Or even just more stuff of Joaquin by himself. Because yeah. everything, all the shots of just him were pretty fascinating. Him wandering. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Like a buddy movie with those two characters would have been awesome. Like touring, like doing a book tour or something. <laughs> but in the next like, life, they will be mortal enemies. Jo- Joaquin's his Joaquin's <laughs> his uh, his muscle, his like his security while he's on tour touring yeah. his book. You know, oh my God. smashing toilets. His lanky muscle. Just... <laughs> Dude, when he kicks the toilet, I was just laughing so hard. <laughs> I know, it's so silly. Oh, I was goodness. sitting there just going. I he, mean. What? He wrecks a toilet in this Paul, movie. Yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson's he always has these awesome, like, long takes, whether they be they moving or still. And the whole that whole scene, I was sitting there going, I can't even fathom being off camera watching this unfold. I would I would be unable to do my job. I'd just be sitting yeah. watching them perform because they're so good. Both of them are mm-hmm. so in character. And I'm like, how does the crew even come to work that day without just stopping and watch the movie? Yeah. It's just it's so cool to watch those those kind of shots. So yeah, I'll never watch it again. But <laughs> but but, but I, I I'm not like super super angry that I went and saw it. Okay. You know what I mean? But Man, this is I can't wait to see it again. This is a and testament it, to that though. It's it's funny because we laud them for their performances, but the movie was for the most part not even that memorable. Yeah. Outside I, of you know moments. And I maybe something like a jerk here, but I feel like it's Joaquin's He's really good in this movie, but I feel like there's a little bit of him that's like, Oscars, please. Like, he's doing all the, th- the right things to get himself an Oscar. He's doing weird physical things. He's doing weird vocal things. He's taking it to that level of, like, hitting could, Kevin J. O'Connor be. in the head and smashing toilets. Like, I feel like he won't... I don't know. I Maybe I might be wrong. Maybe I'm just being jaded. But I have this feeling like there's a little bit of that where he's like, here's my comeback story, kids. Well, you know? the joke's on us when the next Joaquin starring movie comes out and it's the exact same character. And it's just Joaquin Phoenix has devolved into this like crazy person. That's who he is now. <laughs> I think I think he... He I does think, the weight loss and weight gain thing, too. I think he brought he it... all of it. Out of necessity <laughs> to the movie. Just because I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson would cast him if he wasn't going to... Well, I mean, he was gonna be boring and just play like a disaffected loser. You know, you could you could get. Oh no, and he does a fantastic. I don't. I mean, if he gets nominated for an Oscar, I'm totally okay with that. Like, I'm not. That doesn't make me angry. But I feel like maybe somewhere in the back of Joaquin Phoenix's head, he's like, you know, semi possibly mentally challenged character. Check. Uh, Smashes things in anger and get really goes there. Check. Weird physical deformities and movements. Check. <laughs> Weird vocal performance. Check. Paint like dinner. he hits Paint all dinner. of those. I don't know. I maybe I'm just a jerk. I don't know. No, I, I mean, like Joaquin. I just think that there might be some of that there, and I feel like there's some of that in Hollywood in general. You know. How do you feel this movie would have been different if Jeremy Renner would have been in that spot, which he was originally slated to do before he picked up every franchise in the world? If Renner brought it even close to walk the way Joaquin brought it, that would have been a, oh my god, Renner can act way beyond what I ever thought he could do. I like Renner, but he doesn't make a leap very often. You know what I mean? He doesn't really... He usually plays military types in a lot of his movies, and yeah. he's got that very cold, like tough guy demeanor. It would have been cool to see him in some of the emotional scenes in this. And it, I think it would have been more jarring for me to see him in that role... Than Joaquin, whether or not he could do it, I don't know. But yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know. It'd I be think. cool. 
But I don't know, man. It would be. Yeah. It'd be totally different. I think. Yeah. I think it yeah. could be better. It could be worse. Um, we'll never yeah. know. I mean, you know. Because I, I, I thought about it afterward after seeing it too, and I think part of what may have made it a little bit weird or underwhelming for me is how weird of a character Wacking is mm-hmm. in the film. Because he's just you're so removed from him because he's so strange, just so. Yeah. Just so far gone from reality. Those brain cells are all killed by paint thinner <laughs> and drinking bomb fueled. And that might be it. Too. That might the be war's over. Too. Quick, drink all the bombs. <laughs> Photography, <laughs> chemicals, and there's no one yeah. to relate to in this movie. No, you know, and I didn't think about that until yeah. you said that, Rick. Like the moment, the, from the first moment we see him to the last moment we see him, he is so out there, and like, yeah. you, it takes a while for you to even get a gl- like a grasp on what he is, like. Is he is he just really drunk all the time? Is there something wrong with him mentally? Is he is it both? I, I you know I think combination of it is a combination post traumatic stress disorder with right. incredible amounts of bizarre alcohols. And <laughs> is he like chemicals. some sort of sex addict? I'm yeah. sure he was insane to begin with, too. Yeah, I, yeah. They, they from hint, the glimpses, they some of this stuff. Yeah, so. I don't know. We'll get into that in spoiler too. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about Renner. I keep thinking of the episode of House that I saw Jeremy Renner in, where he was like really, really good in it, and he was totally strung out the whole time, and like he was really good. But then, well, this movie, I just keep thinking of well, Joaquin, Joaquin's like entire self was in that movie. Like he threw himself yeah. into it completely, and I just kept thinking about the one scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman. This is totally non-spoilery, but when he's speaking to the big crowd of people about like his book mm-hmm. and. It keeps cutting to that shot of Joaquin Phoenix going, yeah, with just his head <laughs> looking up. at him like that, staring at him like every single line in his face was just like placed there. The char- yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I just kept watching. I'm like, this is such a ridiculously overly nuanced performance where every little the way he twisted his face to talk and like, I just I don't see Renner quite bringing it to that level yet. But I, it would have been awesome but if I he think, did. But but I think it'd be comparably. I think it'd be comparable and a bit different. Be I interesting. Think it, I think it would way. still be awesome, though. I think thing. it still would have been a cool movie. It would have been an interesting dynamic. Um, Renner, maybe not being quite so weird, would have made it more believable why he'd want to keep this guy around. But yeah, I think it would have made. Just I think him that's more that's relatable. why the movie's interesting, though, because the fact that he wanted to keep him around, even though he's obviously such a crazed, he like, caused him nothing but problems, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, and but that's, he was like that's one loyal, thing. He was like a dog. Like he was a fiercely yeah. loyal was, dog. Yeah, there was even pretty blatant allusions to that too. Yeah, maybe Joaquin was was bringing it, like doing all that stuff because he knew this kind of ha- he had to like make an impact ever, like because he's taken such a long break from acting and all that. People got kind of like, yeah, I think it was. I think it stuff. was the right way. I mean, well, had he gone like the Gerard Butler route or something and been in a bunch of shitty rom coms, like <laughs> I don't see why would have been the wrong way to come back. back. Yeah. Right. That's and it, what you just said totally. You know, proves that he needed to be in a serious movie where he could put, you know, create a really serious character. That's something kind of. He needed of an Oscar-worthy performance. Yes, yeah, and I, I think it's something that he as an he's a pretty serious actor. Mm-hmm. He's not been in too much crap really, mm-hmm. and he's talented. I mean, ever since Gladiator, when he was like young, yeah. and people were like, "Whoa!" and he got nominated for an Oscar for that, like right off the bat. And uh, although actually during that same scene when he was sitting there going. Staring, I was think. I immediately thought to myself, for some weird reason, I was like, "I wonder what River Phoenix would be doing if he was still alive." Because I thought, "How here's the like the little brother sort of who was yeah. like River Phoenix is still talked about." Like, "Oh, so sad he died," and like, 
I'm like, this guy's giving like a grand slam performance, and it's weird because when people inevitably they bring up River Phoenix, I think when a lot of people talk about Joaquin Phoenix, people like to romanticize the the young dead right. though. Yeah, I mean. Who, if his career continued, it could have been wonderful. Yeah, James Dean in like three mediocre movies. <laughs> but who knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyway. The last, the last thing I want to say about Joaquin is I think unconsciously, even because of the whole kind of crazy um, crazy he had from thing. Hollywood, I still think that unconsciously that has an effect on how you perceive him mm-hmm. in such a absolutely. performance, especially when he's miming someone who's to- just absolutely... Yeah. Nuts. I mean, what'll really prove? I mean, say he's definitely going to get nominated for an Oscar at least, yeah. and whether he wins it or not, whatever his behavior is like at the awards ceremony, I am totally confident he's just going to be regular guy in a tuxedo. Like, I hope he does. Hey, yeah, I'm totally. I'm. I'm pretty sure. I should say my love of Joaquin Phoenix is completely removed from any of his performances in life. I don't. I don't know why or how it happened. I was Joaquin Phoenix for Halloween. <laughs> Two years ago, and I just he was. Did, I'm still here, Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, I let my hair get all like weird, and I had a cigarette hanging out of my mouth, and I bought some sunglasses that looked like it, and wrote and wrote the uh, what did it say? It said "buy good" on his hands when he uh, mm. when he was on the red carpet and he was leaving acting, and that whole thing I think certainly makes me think when watching this movie, just like. What is this really gonna like? Is this really the right performance for him to give to show people that he's willing to go all the way? And I think he certainly, by the end of the movie, you're like, this is like, it's clearly, good for him. clearly, he has control over things in his in his performance and in his body that That's ridiculous. Most people don't even think about when you get to movies. It's very like Daniel Day Lewis. I think that it's very inevitable that the two performances are going to be compared to. The yeah. Characters are similar on some pretty noticeable levels. Daniel Plainview. Not um, only because they're psychosis <laughs> at times, but just the way they walk is kind of strange. Yeah. They're kind of weird. I mean, the voice of Plainview is very unique. The voice of, of uh, Joaquin in this movie was not... It was just the way he talked was yeah. weird. And his laugh was really freaking weird. Yeah. The way he talked outside of his mouth. It was more... Watching him speak was more interesting than listening Can to we get a speak. dramatic laughing? From me? Yeah. I can't Can we get an impression of no his way. Laugh? <laughs> no, I don't no know. No one does. No, a totally unique creation. Only Joaquin. I guarantee you, though, there there will be videos of teenagers imitating it on YouTube, kind of like <laughs> right after the Heath, Heath Ledger, Ledger, yeah, and Tom Hardy and Daniel Plainview. All right, so let's get some real quick some summary thoughts of the movie, and then we'll move into spoiler territory. As Did, Willie said, didn't love it, didn't absolutely hate it, would never watch it again. <laughs> All right, really, never, never. Mm. It was good. It was really understated, uh, which is usually right up my alley. Um, I'll watch it. Nothing happens. I'll give it another chance in a couple years. Maybe you'll um, feel differently when it comes out yeah. on DVD. I'll watch it again for sure. Yeah, I'm in no rush to see it again. I think these are the type of movies people need to be watching again, though, because obviously it's encouraging conversation. People are actually thinking about what they're watching. So I'm just going, yeah, good. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Back to work. <laughs> like Resident Evil, like, come on, it was stupid and there's nothing to talk about. It's just, and how many movies like that are there where it just, it happens and you watch it happen and then you go home and do... And then we the go fact, home and record 50 minutes on it. <laughs> well, the fact, the fact that this this one is going to be on my mind for a couple of days, I'm sure, and I'm going to talk about it with a lot of different friends over the course of, of, you know, a week or two, 
I think speaks, you know, it's kind of a testament to the fact that it's a pretty worthy movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's no value. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that the value added isn't as, as, good as, as dense as his other films. Yeah, fair enough. It just falls a little short. All right, I think that about sums it up for non-spoilers. So we'll take a quick break, and then we'll cut into some spoilers for The Master. Alright, so we're back. This is spoiler territory for the master. Uh, turn it off here and skip ahead by like 15-20 minutes if you want to get to our food for thought. Yes. So, um... I think we're just going to go through and point out particular moments. I don't really know how much you can really spoil for the movie. Uh, so, uh, you know, we can just kind of talk about certain things. One of the scenes that really struck me was was the one in the department store when he's working as the photographer. And he gets in a fight with, like, the man of stature of some kind. You can tell that he's kind of like... Uh, there's just, like, you don't even see the guy that he's photogra- photographing photographing until like probably 30 seconds into that scene and you can just uh, the amount of time that it spends on Joaquin and and the stupid adjustments that he's doing with the camera and whatnot you can tell that he's got like a problem with the person that's on the other end of that lens yeah and um after that just like the way that they start fighting in the store and the way that the camera kind of moves behind the pillar to like recenter on the action and and everything that happens there is just really 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 well done and the awkward way that like Joaquin's throwing these glasses at him and and then he like picks up two of them and walks out because he's like I'm clearly never coming back here again (laughs) it's the weirdest fight ever on film yeah it's a very strange like and you don't even understand exactly why the fight happened it's just like you know, he kept inching the lights closer, and it came to shoving, and, like, it... I don't know, it was just a very weird scene, but it was really, really well, like, shot. Yeah. I think, in particular. Like, that's one of the things that really stood out about it to me, but... And a scene previous to that one, too, not immediately, but... All around before the of the girl, the girl with the the mink coat, when she was walking yeah. around showing it to people, was one long yeah. shot that just wove its way all the, around, all the way around the whole store, and yeah. I was like, this is that was a great shot. I wonder what the average shot length is for this movie. That'd be interesting to look at. Speaking Paul of, somewhere Paul Greengrass is like, this shit is boring. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, of weird uh, scenes, I, I guess my part of the spoiler territory will be covering some of the moments that made me feel really uncomfortable. Joaquin <laughs> um, jerking off into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> the, the entire first bit of Joaquin pumping a sand vagina and then <laughs> or masturbating for way too it, it lasted too long yeah. it yeah. started to get weird and like all these guys were like yeah hump that sand vagina it was really <laughs> um, they're like cheering him on like a bunch of frat guys and then uh, yes jerking off in the ocean was very strange um, when he's like when the one girl he's hey, the girl with the mink coat yep. he's gonna have sex with her in the back room and he like Pulls her, she pulls her top off, and he like pokes her nipples. It was, it was just really weird. And yeah. like, I was like, "What's happening?" Um, and then the worst, yeah, the weirdest, the creepiest. Okay, I have seen Philip Seymour Hoffman in a sex scene before, and it was weird enough. 
with um, it was in a movie called Before the Devil Knows You're Dead mm. with um, Marissa Tomei. Tomei. Marissa Tomei, who, oh God, Marissa Tomei, thank you for existing. Anyway, <laughs> that was weird enough, even though she, like, like she was in it, because it was Philip Seymour Hoffman. To watch him get jerked off by Amy Adams. Pregnant Amy Adams. Pregnant Amy Adams. In, in, in like, not that I don't think that you can do a handjob romantic, but, like, in, like, the least romantic way possible, she was, like, standing there talking to him about, like, random stuff. Yeah, like, she, she, he got, like, a lecture during the process. During the process. <laughs> and then she started saying really gross, dirty things to him that I won't repeat here. And there were a lot of moments where I was, like, gross, like, grossed out, like, yeah. uncomfortable. But I think that that it kind of weirdly worked with the movie anyway. So, so. married life is, like, you guys get jacked off while you're brushing your teeth I, if I look like <laughs> well you get you get jerked off and you get a telling too yeah I hope that doesn't that's not how I'm getting mixed signals it's, honey it's disciplinary sex <laughs> am I in trouble or? <laughs> it was really awkward sex throughout the whole movie was used to make you uncomfortable it was sex, yeah, sex was. in the movie was never ever ever remotely like beautiful it was it was it was always gross deviant in some way yeah yeah which or I think was, in was some way. kind of interesting I'm still trying to lock down what exactly he was trying to say I think they were trying to maybe draw some parallels between the two characters because obviously they were meant to be so different yeah which is why there was that attraction yeah yeah but I don't know there, I think that was the only sexual scene with Phil Hoffman wasn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it didn't. It didn't like not not to the point of like ruining the movie for me. I mean, it would take a lot for that, but it was there were some, certainly some moments in the movie where it was like Ew. there was even a weirdness in the fact that Phil Hoffman and Amy Adams seem a little disparate in age, yeah. and then she said something about like jealous, scared people, and then she said ex wives, and I'm like, so I wonder how many ex wives and how many other kids Philip Seymour Hoffman has with other women because. His son seemed too old, and his daughter, frankly, to be from Amy Adams. They, yeah. they weren't. Yeah. They definitely weren't. Like so, his, his son was like not that much younger than which, Amy. Or, yeah. Which kind of, I think, added even more to the idea that, to the, to the cult-like idea, because these, these like cult figures seem to always have like many wives, with yeah. like many kids with many different women. It's funny how the movie kind of... I knew going into it that it was about like a cult, but when you're watching the movie, it doesn't seem that way until Grant Test just comes out and says it. <laughs> because when you're watching it, you're like, okay, he's on a boat, and there's this family out there having a party, and then you see that they're all like, he talks about like doing work and stuff like that, and then you see them all doing like listening to his voice through like headphones and mm-hmm. that, and you're kind of like, okay, this is getting progressively weirder, and then until you finally are like. Okay, because at first it just seems like this small, isolated group of people that worship Philip Seymour Hoffman. You're like, okay, whatever, they're just a band of weirdos. Um, but then when when there's finally that ugly confrontation, which confirms immediately that it is a cult because they all get so hot and bothered about it. They don't, like he said, you're not willing to discuss your beliefs rationally. Yeah. You just believe it's right. Uh, that got really intense really quickly. And you can yeah. see almost everyone in the room was kind of like, eh. Until Joaquin Phoenix whip, whips a tomato at him. <laughs> he did. He pegged him with that tomato. That was it was my... good, though, because the, the movie was going along nicely, and everybody was getting along right up until that point. And all of a yeah. sudden, you saw... You almost start to, like... Almost feel like part of the group, in a way, as the viewer. You're like, these people are all, like, cool to each other. They're all, like, interesting. And then as soon as a normal person comes along, totally shatters the illusion. You're like, oh, wait, they're all weird as hell. 
And I just thought that was really, really well done. Because I'm sitting here, I mean, obviously you're like, Joaquin Phoenix is really bizarre, and this whole thing is a little bit weird. But as soon as he comes along, it totally brought me back to reality. And yeah. I was like, yeah, they're all psychos. Like, <laughs> the glass shattered, and you were uh-huh. like, oh, oh yeah. That's one thing that with the with the movie, with the cult angle, with the cult aspect, which is a huge part of the movie, I was kind of torn because part of me almost wanted there to be more going on with the cult and for them to maybe show some of, maybe there were like inner corruption in the cult and like Seymour Hoffman doing things. I mean, I didn't need to see him like seducing younger women in the cult or anything that over the top, but like maybe yeah. something that would show you a darker side of the cult. But at the same time, I was like, you know what? I'm glad that they didn't exploit the idea of this religious group either. I don't know. I was torn about that because part of me felt like that would have added more weight to what was going on and and Joaquin's eventual decision to take off. Yeah. You know, and it might have given his character a little bit more humanity to say, like, yeah, I'm kind of messed up, but this seems something's wrong here. I don't know. Like, But at the same time, like I said, I don't. that might have been too much. Yeah. It might have been like... Cults are evil, you know, like so many movies have done before. Mm-hmm. So yeah, his character wasn't a particularly bad guy, even. No, no, he wasn't. Although Joaquin taking erratic, Joaquin taking off was like totally unprompted. It seemed like it didn't strike any of you guys as strange. Yeah. Well, well, the, when he's sitting, when you were talking about the looks he's making when he's giving that speech, and he and Seymour <coughs> Hoffman's giving that speech about his new book, and if you remember right, they just went and dug up some old. Some old work. Oh, right. Well, Seymour Hoffman dug into his, at least I assumed this, I'm making a leap here, dug into his old work to write the new book because he had no new material. And that's why the Laura Dern calls him out and says, wait a second, the rules have changed. Well, he didn't even think about it when he put it in there. He mm. was just digging up old stuff. Well, I think that Joaquin started to see through that a little bit. And you can kind of tell when he's watching him, he's looking back like, He's just making something. Things. He's making he, something like like his son was saying earlier, you're making it up yep. as you're going. And when, when Kevin J. O'Connor says, like, oh, this is crap or whatever, I think Joaquin lashes out at him more because he's realizing the truth yeah. about it. And less, I don't think he's even that offended by what he says about him. I think he's more like he needs somebody to just, you know. He kind of that, that it mirrors that same scene with his son. That's, mm-hmm. you know, like he would have gotten rough with the son if the cops hadn't showed up yeah. at that point. But I think that's, that's probably really that's probably the more interesting through line now that we're talking about it, of is seeing the uh, the decomposition of the cult in Joaquin's mind, starting with that point with the son, with the son saying he's just making it all up, and then fully going to the point at the end where he's just kind of like, I see what you're doing and that you really want to help me, but you really have no clue you're just throwing a bunch of darts at the board and hoping they stick and I think you know that's probably the most interesting plot line to follow through the movie that's like the most consistent plot line in the movie but mm-hmm. interesting it's kind of burying the lead that's that's true but I, I kind of have to play devil's advocate and challenge that only because I don't know if Joaquin is even that self-aware because even like that's true I, I don't know what motivation he has to be there or not to be there and that's part of my problem with him as a character and with the movie as a whole is I don't believe any of the things that he does um, I was happy to see him just kind of take off on the motorcycle but I didn't re- particularly make sense either way and to get to the ending am I, can I talk about the ending? yeah yeah, of course I thought it totally uh, undermined the whole thing is kind of weird because he leaves and then he seems like he's in decent spirits. He seems like he's kind of regained a bit of his humanity back by not lashing out at um, that woman's mother 
and it seems like he has in somewhat control of his emotions. And then, you, like, there's some random passage of time, and then he's kind of hanging out in the movie theater. And then, Asleep. yeah. He's strung out again. Yeah, yeah, but there's no indication of, like, why or how he fell back into it. So it just seems kind of lazy and sloppy. And then by the time he goes back, by the time he goes to England, he's kind of back to where Regress. he was at the beginning. Yeah, it's strange because I think that I think that part of that maybe was just it didn't come through in the performance well enough. That's the one part part where I was like, maybe this was Joaquin's performance. It was a bad take or something they used because I think the point they were trying to get across was when he left on that motorcycle, he, his one intention was, I'm going to get my girl back finally. Like, like he, he was thinking clearly on he had a focus right. for once. because And, and really, the, the cult and that experience helped him gain that focus. Even if he decided he didn't want to stick around with them, it helped him gain that focus. So when he goes back to her house and realizes that she's moved on, I think what they wanted to convey was that he had nothing left at that point. Like, the one thing he had, he had put all his eggs in one basket by leaving that cult, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to do it anymore. And so when Philip Seymour Hoffman calls him up, he sees an opportunity, like, maybe I can go back out and start some... Because he keeps trying these new... I mean, this he can never find his place in the world after the war. Right. He cannot find his place. Like, he tries multiple professions. We see him doing that. He ruins everyone he goes to. Yeah. Well, he hates you know. authority, too. Yeah, so he hates it. Right. He's not going to excel in anywhere. So, I don't know. I mean, he has moments of lucidity as a character. Moments where he's a little bit more in in touch with reality and what's going on around him. But it's never really explained how or why he jumps from completely erratic to, you know, is he bipolar? Is he, is it from drinking all that crap that he drinks all the time? What, <laughs> you know, maybe a little bit more of a reasoning for, is, is he insane like his mother was? I mean, they, they give you a lot of possible reasons for why he is the way he is, but there's never any real definition of why he would bounce from A to B and then back to A again. And right. Then, so I totally get where you're coming from with that. And even when he... Even though his plans get kind of thwarted, you know, to get the girl back, there's still no indication of how much time has passed since mm-hmm. he left. Not that there explicitly needs to be, but it's, it just feels vague. Yeah. It doesn't feel... So what you're saying solid. is you want, like, December 12, yeah. 1950? No, I want it in I want it in, like, a monospaced font, like, career. Okay. Yeah, like, a, like a typewriter. No comic sans. <laughs> no. Military time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm totally okay with. I mean, the more I thought about it, just standing outside the theater, I'm I'm really okay with just the really vague passage of time because it makes it more interesting in my mind to think about. You don't even need to see. I think we know his character well enough at that point where we know when he's sitting in that movie theater, just kind of like sleeping away an afternoon watching Casper, that he's pretty much. I'm glad off. that you remembered it was Casper. He's falling off the wagon again. And we know at that point it's pretty much just because everything he tries to do, he inevitably fails. We don't need to see him doing it at that point. It would. It's really interesting, though, that the most interesting possible aspects of the story and these people's lives are the ones that we don't see. Yeah. Like, the ones in between the scenes. Yeah. And it's almost weird that they chose to show you, not all, but most of the stuff that maybe isn't as interesting. So maybe you can draw your own conclusions as to what happened in between, but... For me, with this kind of movie, I'd rather see. I want to see the dirt. Like I want to see he the did, real, though. the meat. Yeah, so you do, uh, Hoffman, and uh, you do. Oh, yeah, yeah well, that was <laughs> kind of unnecessary, but I don't know. I, I think just, it's cool. It's it's kind of a reflection of real life, though. If you think about it, like that's the way life is. It's long and drawn out, and the the details are 
not always that interesting. Right. And I think that we saw the formative part of his story that needed to be seen. While it may not be, like, crazy... I mean, there are definitely outbursts of crazy emotion, but the the relationship between those two was really interesting. And I think it was was really interesting when he showed back up to the cult. And it was like, like, he had no place else to go. And it was also like, he... And they said, oh, is he expecting you? He's like, he should be. And he's like, I took that picture and everything. It's kind of like, I think he felt good about being back for a minute. And then when he was back in that office and Amy Adams was a total bitch to him again and probably pretty much spelled it out for him that he's not actually interested in getting any better. He just needs some place to go. Because it's, I mean... He asked for a job. He says, he says something like, you know, if you need me to take pictures, I'll take pictures. Yeah. And then he realizes that Philip Seymour Hoffman still just wants to cure him, and he has no interest in being cured. He just, he wants, just wants a place to, to be do. Yeah. at that point. Because everything else in his life is crap, so he just all he wants is a place to be and drink his paint thinner and live out the rest of his days <laughs> in a drug field, you know, haze. I don't know. <laughs> there are so many people like that in the world, though, I think, that it kind of rings true. So many people where they have no... They have no family. They have no friends. No they, ambition. They strictly just get by and do whatever they need to to get by. And I mean, that's at least that's what those are the the people that cults I think have probably traditionally preyed on are people that have no allegiances and no friends or family to miss them or like even the Strangers in the Candy episode. <laughs> cults prey on the friendless, Jerry. <laughs> Oftentimes, uh, it's it's you know like young homeless kids and stuff. Not homeless necessarily, but like that or young idealistic stuff that people. Up, yeah. Like during like the the hippie movements and stuff like that, when the like the Jim Jones or what was his name? Yeah, Jim Jones. Yeah, all that. Like Charles Manson. Ninety percent of those. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Ninety percent of those people were like kids that were kind of living out on their own and. Yeah. They're just yeah, because I mean, a, a lot of people in the world have issues, and uh, I think the the movie was not far from the mark where you have these this guy who comes home from war and has no place because. Back then, too, the war, the war was it. That was the place to be, was at war in World War Two, and you come back to a country that, frankly, doesn't want you to come back because you caused the biggest economic boom that the nation has ever known by being gone. I mean, today we know it's a pretty... It's kind of almost a lazy stereotype of soldier who doesn't fit in, but it's interesting to watch it in the, in the context of the 50s. John Carter. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like... In these, how many how many movies now have backdrop of like every oh, yeah. guy from come home from Iraq who was from the wrong side of the yeah. tracks to begin with? Born on the Fourth of July, like beats you over the head. Does with it? Yeah. <laughs> or it was stop loss of the movie. Like, <laughs> it's all those boys. Even uh, uh, it was cool to see it in the fifties, though. It was supposed to be this era. Most movies that take place during the fifties that we know are like upbeat, exactly. <laughs> it's like these family family movies and. Uh, and here we have this incredibly disgusting side of that same decade. It's interesting to see what was lurking beneath the surface. Tree of Life's interesting in that way, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. No spoilers for that. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen Tree of Life? Nope. There's the nature documentary in the there's middle a, of that. <laughs> there's a long I hear there's dinosaurs in that movie, actually. There are. Anyway. All right. Um, any, other, any other quick spoiler thoughts? The, sh- the the scene of, of Joaquin Phoenix just picturing all the women with all their clothes on I thought was really awesome pretty funny yeah. pretty that. comical yeah, pretty really awesome. effective for showing how bizarre this dude was that he was just like <laughs> so was melting in the corner like a Salvador Dali painting yeah. <laughs> imagining all the women naked 
It was really interesting. And somehow Amy Adams sees that in his eyes. <laughs> He's like, yeah. I know exactly what you're doing. When that right shot now. ends and everyone dances away and she's just staring at him. Phil Hoffman was sweet though. The more I'm thinking about the movie, the, he was pretty awesome. They were pretty adorable together when they're wrestling after uh, yeah. they get out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah, that, that was uh, such an interesting relationship. Like you said, the, the yin to the yang. Every time the they scene, saw each other, even physically, because they always they would always hug. Other. Big well, well, would you would you deny a hug from Phil Hoffman? No, never. Feel like clouds. <laughs> would you want to hug shoulders? I want to just everything. Do you guys notice probably, he makes the same sound when he drinks alcohol as he does when he's getting his uh, his HD in back of his <laughs> <laughs> well, The problem is that it wasn't alcohol; it was painful. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The uh, the scene though where where Joaquin Phoenix submitted himself for processing whatever it was called was so good. It was. Yeah, that was that was especially the best scene it was film. really 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 entertaining. And then when it got to the point of the stop blinking. And then when he when he failed it and he tried to want to try again that I was just like on the edge of my seat. That's the best like, scene of the movie. So yeah. intense and really like revealing for both characters. And once like, again, it's between those Philly, two. Yeah, Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman really wants to get at the core of what makes this guy sick. It seems like he does really genuinely want to help him. I think he does yeah. too. I think that he truly has has friendly feelings towards him because he recites that he sings that song at the end for him again. That was so. I did not know what to make of that because he uh, towards the end of the song he sounded almost threatening. Yeah, and like his face was like quivering. I think with, like, was, anger. I think he was getting I think emotional. He was just so yeah. That was the one time that it's funny because that was the one time in the film he lost control of his emotions. Yeah, it's true. You know, in jail he the mask the mask yelled. slid off. But that was the one time in which he was in control of himself, which is yeah. what he was preaching the whole film. And too. he knew it was the last time he was going to see him. Yeah. yeah, but I think he just felt a mixture of like rage and sadness and and he failed. Empathy. Yeah. You know, hmm. that was like the ultimate test for him to take this guy who it, it really is an animal. And that was one of his big things: is we're better than the animals. To take the ultimate animal, you know, yep. yeah, and civilize it, and it didn't work. So, well, yeah, even domesticated. There was even yeah. the allusion to you know taming a dragon. Yeah, and then yeah, at one point true. he even that says, weird marriage speech. Yep, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, which made was, was so bizarre. Yeah. But at one point also, uh, he commanded. Um, Joaquin Phoenix to like very distinct directions I think when uh, he threw the tomato he told him to stop and to sit or something yeah. which is what he said to the dragon earlier too hmm. so it's yeah I wonder what happened to Grant Test I wonder if they killed him or just beat him with an inch of his life or what I don't yeah, think there was a killing I think it was more of like yeah. Break up, break the crap in your apartment and tell you never to you know, <laughs> break your legs, yeah. break your toes, broken. Hang out at the hearth and knock a few pictures off. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy. All right. Last so thing. okay, one more yeah. thing. I, I actually the bits of the soundtrack I really liked were the just bizarre Johnny Greenwood compositions where everything is just so like syncopated and weird. Yeah, there were a few moments, especially with like the horns, where they like really like. I don't even know if it's necessarily dissonant. Yeah, yeah. But just, I didn't. It's, I didn't like the. Like I didn't like the, yeah. the percussion because it reminded me too much of There Will Be Blood. It it had elements of that, but I think it was. I liked the enough. weird dissonant, like randomly, almost randomly playing, like the horns and the strings. I remember the one scene was when he was first walking to the to the to the ship yep. to like stow away. I remember really noticing it there and thinking it fit in really nicely. But I remember there was one point where it actually kind of got distracting because. At one point, I was seriously about to lean over to you, Rick, and say, has the song been playing for, like, 15 minutes straight? Because it was, like, the same, just... 
droning track, and I was kind was of like toward the beginning. Yeah, it was earlier in the movie. Yeah. It wasn't like the very beginning. It was probably like 25, 30 minutes in. There was a point where I was finally like, okay, fucking end this track. Like, <laughs> pardon my language, but that's how I seriously felt. Because like in There Will Be Blood, it was totally great. And this one, I almost felt like they were kind of trying to fall back too much on that same... Because it worked kind so just, well for that, and so many people were talking about it, it generated such buzz. Yeah. Because it was such a non-traditional well, soundtrack. Yeah, but it, it passes along so much But the way the, the very, very, very first... Literally, the first shot of the movie, the soundtrack is really interesting, and it, it almost has like this little fanfare, like overture at the beginning, and then it just devolves into that dum 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 that sets, this, the, sets the tone for the rest of the movie. At the beginning, it was like just that first shot of him under his helmet, like yeah. blinking. Oh, there was that shot like midway through of him with his head down with just the sig. It was just a random slice in the middle of him when he was still in the navy. Yeah, and it was the coolest shot because his face was completely black underneath, and all yeah. you saw was the sig poking. Out. And then he looked up for a second, you saw his eyes, and it was back down. And I was like, oh, that was cool. Yeah, that was cool. Totally random, but there were just so many moments like that visually that were just really, really neat. Really nice. It was cool because he was smoking cools. Yeah. <laughs> Boo. I'm surprised Phil Hoffman didn't say, hey, where the hell is my motorcycle? <laughs> Did you ride it to England, bitch? <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Kevin J. O'Connor popping up was kind of neat. Yeah. Looking like he walked off the set of There Will Be Blood. In an honest Stephen Summers movie. Onto the set of this movie. <laughs> All right. Alright, so we're going to take another quick little break and then we will head into Food for Thought. Alright, we're back. Uh, It's up to some Food for Thought, sponsored by Willie Gibbs, since we don't have any feedback yet. So email us at feedback at midwestfilmnerds.com if you want to have our Food for Thought section, or just give us some feedback to talk about. But... Yep, I'm gonna run ideas soon, guys. So yeah. Please send some. So what's what's up on the docket this week? Um, given the awkward nature of tonight's film that we <laughs> reviewed, um, in some moments, I would like you guys to tell me the most awkward moment you've had watching a movie. Um, could be the person you were with, the movie you were watching, pretty much anything goes. And I'll kick things off. Okay. Um, two brief things. One, my grandparents were staying over at my house once. Uh. Doesn't happen very often, but it was happening at this point in time. My papa's pretty, uh, pretty laid back, pretty much cool with anything. Grandma, she's awesome, but she's very reserved. Yeah, and she's quite a bit religious. Okay. Um, somebody decided was I don't even remember who. Somebody decided to put it in South Park bigger, longer, and uncut. <laughs> wow. My papa thought it was the best thing ever. <laughs> and my just being in the room with it playing, and my grandma's in the corner, and they're talking about rim jobs and I was just like oh this is <laughs> so bad like I I literally was sitting there with my face turned away from her like, oh like it was horrible um that was that was really rough the only other one was the fir- literally the first date I ever went on was like fourth grade I asked a girl to go see a movie with me because I was ahead of my time no big deal and um is that ahead of your time I don't know I feel like I was I was a pioneer so I asked this girl to go see a movie with me we were going to go see National Lampoon's Vegas Vacation. Okay. <laughs> and actually, it's not National Lampoon's. Now I'm correcting myself. Who cares? Um, Vegas Vacation. It was sold out for some weird reason. <laughs> the, the theater was sold out. And the only other movie that we were even remotely interested in seeing was Alien Resurrection. 
Now I want you guys to think about Alien Resurrection and all the creepy, weird, sexual, naked stuff that goes on in that movie. And here I am in fourth grade with my first date, and like, there's like naked Sigourney Weaver clones that are like torn in half, and like, <laughs> she's like rubbing up on Alien. It's really horror. The whole experience was terrible. It was really bad. And I think she was really grossed out the whole time, which didn't make it any better, because she wanted Vegas Vacation, which is a lot tamer of a film, by the way. <laughs> Alex. Well, mine's not particularly good. Um, the first girlfriend that I had, I kind of stole from a friend of mine, kind of. It's a very long story. But before we were officially dating, we, like, went to the movies with our group of friends, and for some reason we ended up going to different movies. And I went to hide-and-seek with this girl. Hide-and-seek starring Robert De Niro, clone uh, of Secret Window and Fight Club. Um, it Basically, we were sitting there in the movie and whatnot. We were, like, right at the top of the stairs. And she, like, had her head on my shoulder or something like that. My arm was around her. And her ex-boyfriend was there at the movies with us, but not in that particular movie. So, because we were, like cool teens and whatnot, the other people in the group were like, we're gonna sneak into another movie, blah blah blah. And one of the guys comes up the stairs and is like, oh this isn't the hide and seek that started at this time or whatnot. And then we were just like, no, this is the one that we went to immediately when we got here. And then it was like okay. And he runs out. So whatever. I thought the night went fine. It was cool. Whatever. I get home and apparently he had reported back to what he saw in the movie theater with my arm around her and her head on my shoulder. And I got a live journal death threat directed directly at me. <laughs> because I had a head on my shoulder. That's, it was That's, that's an amazing death. name for a heavy metal band. Live journal death threat. <laughs> that's, well, that's going on the list. That, well, that's, that's a song by Submarine Sign Up Bonus, yes, I think. I have a list going. But, uh, yeah, that was... I guess the movie situation wasn't completely awkward, but when I got home, it was it was not good. That's always strange, dealing with exes of significance. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to enjoy a good Robert De Niro film. <laughs> <laughs> a mediocre Robert De Niro One of film. the finest Robert De Niro flicks that right. one can find. It's right up there with uh, The Godfather Part 2 and Heat, isn't it? And the Cape Fear remake. Yeah. You know it. Okay. Sweaty Robert turn? De Niro. Yes. Nick's turn. I'm gonna have, I have two, two brief ones and, and a, an, an even briefer one. It doesn't even involve me, but it's such a great story <laughs> that I have to tell it. My, my two brief ones, actually, I just realized, involved the same girlfriend I had from high school. Um, I remember she came with me, my dad, my brother, and I think maybe just us or something. I remember it was a strange crowd to go see Fellowship of the Ring. And I remember me and my dad and my brother were so totally into it. And she was completely not that into it <laughs> at all. And my dad and my brother, when it was over, we were talking about it like all the way back and she was like just sitting in the car like waiting out the window like what am I doing with like nerds oh man and oh, god so that was what 01 around then ish yeah. okay and I remember she and I went to go see the first and as if that wasn't like nerdy enough like Tolkien's pretty much like even nerds make fun of like Tolkien fans like Tolkien's just like the nerdiest crap ever and before those movies came out it was just like the lowest of basement dwellers love Tokyo. <laughs> uh, but she and I, and this is even worse. Keyboard this, warriors. This is even, yeah. This is, you know, pre-keyboard warriors. <laughs> um, this is, like, so nerdy on my part, but it was just, 
All right, so when superhero movies first started getting made, it was like this amazing renaissance for people like me and Willie in particular who grew up reading like tons of comic books and were just like so nerdy. And uh, so when X-Men came out, it was just like this, like all of the nerds were like, oh my God. And like, yeah, and it was cool because not only were we seeing these characters who we had enacted with action figures and our imaginations and like played in our backyards and bin them and like punched each other and pretended to be Wolverine and stuff we saw them on the big screen not only was that cool but the fact that like ev- the rest of the world was enjoying it was just like amazing yeah so that was such a high for like me to be running riding on and <laughs> so me and the same girlfriend I just re- realized we went to see the first Spider-Man and I was a huge Spider-Man fan as a kid and so as as like a, a mid-teenager seeing this on screen was just gonna be too cool for my my brain to contain and she just came along because, like, whatever. Yeah. And I remember sitting there, and when when the moment when Uncle Ben says, with great power comes great responsibility, I said it along with him. And she <laughs> turned to me like, what the hell did you just say? And I was like, yeah. Like, I thought it was so cool. I totally didn't even pay attention. And she was like, this is the biggest nerd I've ever met. And we weren't together much longer after that. <laughs> totally my fault. But, hey, I embrace it. Whatever. It was, it was a great moment. So those were both super she awkward. She wasn't cool enough funny, dude. No. It's funny that's the same person, but uh, the other really brief one is that, and this is only, I only by, I've only heard offhand, but when my mom and my dad were first together, and uh, before a couple years before I was born, when Tron came out in the theater, the original Tron, <laughs> my dad took my mom and my dad went to go see it, and my mom hated it so much. <laughs> to this day, she still talks about how much she hated that movie. And my dad loved it so much. And I guess during the movie, he was just, like, totally nerding out even more than me with Spider-Man. And my mom could not be more disinterested. And it's funny because they... It's been how many years since that movie? And 82, like, so 30 years. Yeah, and my mom still is like... If I ever mention anything about Sean, she's like, Oh, <laughs> God, that movie. And she always goes, And your dad loved it. And I couldn't wait to have nothing to do with it again. <laughs> I just love that that incredibly awkwardness, that That's disparity awesome. existed way back before I was even born. Yeah, so transcended generations. It absolutely, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, it did. It's so good. It's oh, so good. all right. Finally, send us home, Rick. All right, I've got two. One's pretty brief. Okay. Uh, so one time, in uh, what year did American Pie come out? Ninety nine. Ninety nine. Okay. Yeah. Whatever grade that was. You were on point, man. In middle school, in middle school, my buddy Jim and I were hanging out, and he was like a really close friend. And I don't remember exactly what we were doing, but we were out doing something with my mom and one of my mom's really good friends. And we went to sporadically go see a movie, and the only thing available at that time was American Pie, and none of us, none of us had any idea what it was going into it, (laughs) and it was horribly awkward. Did you sit through the whole thing? Yeah, and it was just, it was weird. That's all wow. I can say about it. But I've got one that tops this. It puts this one to shame. I was dating this girl uh, in like 2005, 2006-ish. And she was like a, she was a total sweetheart, really innocent. And she came from like a really wholesome family. And uh, I used to go over there and eat dinner a lot. And one time I brought a stack of DVDs. I think I've just, heard this one. Right? You probably have. Yeah. Of random DVDs. And I don't even remember what was in there. Um, and her dad, Gary, approached me and was like, so you guys going to watch a movie tonight? And I said, yeah, probably. I was like, I brought over some DVDs. And then he starts going through them and he puts them all next to one another. 
and there's this movie, this movie. They're all kind of dark or weird in some way. And then he uh, points out, what's Requiem for a Dream? <laughs> and I go, uh, you, you guys don't want to watch that. And he goes, well, what kind of movies are you bringing over to watch with my daughter that you can't watch with me or my wife? And I was like, it's up to you guys. If you really want to watch it, we can watch it. It's going to be weird. And so... Oh, that night yeah, we yeah. watched Requiem for a Dream with her parents <laughs> and it was the director's cut and it was the weirdest experience <laughs> I am, probably in oh my, my life God. the whole movie was your heart racing the whole time like it it gonna get, it's gonna get worse it was <laughs> my girlfriend's next to me totally she's just stiff as a board and I am too I'm just like staring at the TV I can't even you don't want to see peripherals I can't even turn to confront them because I'm so just like aghast <laughs> oh at what God. is going on and then uh, once the once the credits roll at the end, and it says like directed by Darren Aronofsky, I, I turn, and thankfully her mom is totally passed out, but her dad just stares at the screen, kind of shakes his head and goes, "Well, that was weird." <laughs> <laughs> and that was it, huh? Yep. And then from then on, they've told all like her. Uh, I'm friends with her older sister okay. and her older sister's husband. And they've told all these people, and so now I'm known. That's as, uh, amazing. This this kid who brought <laughs> this deviant, that's this amazing. deviant who brought Requiem for a Dream over and watched it. That's really uncomfortable. That was, yeah, Her that family probably now still jokes about asking. God, I just I remember the Jennifer Connelly scene. That's probably the worst. Oh, when they're on butt to butt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Her family probably still now quotes so like ass to ass. I yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I don't yeah. That's well, always uncomfortable. It was weird. Jeez. That's a good one. I don't. I don't know why I brought it over in the first place. I don't even remember what else was with it. But there, I think I may have brought like old boys. You probably, probably, you probably never expected expected him in in a billion years to go. Let's look through these. Yeah, exactly. I think I'll join you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so awkward. Much. Sorry, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, no, I think dude. it was. I would have rather gone through that than not. But at the time, I was mortified. mortified. Just to be a quick spin-off, just like yes or no, have you ever had an instance where you've had a movie that you love, and you watch it with someone else, and they are completely not in any regard interested in it, or they think it's just like shitty as hell? Have you ever had that happen? Yeah. 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 I'm that's, sure that's I have. So yeah. Kristen hated so the worst tree life. That might be a future uh, Oh, yeah, installment. we went and saw it together. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That'd be a good one. That's, I always mean, I can't... that's always really uncomfortable when you're really passionate about something and then you're, like, really psyched for the other person to see it and they're kind of like, eh. Yeah, because the movies are so different when you watch them either by yourself or, like, with other people. It's weird. And then with certain people that just, you think, for some bizarre reason, you love something so much, you convince yourself that other people will appreciate it, too. And then so you're watching it with them and you're like, eh. I can see why you wouldn't like this. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty, well, I think that's about it. I apologize that we didn't get a Kyle XY this time. It's, uh, we're, we're really going to work on it. Yeah, it's yeah. just going to have to happen at some point. Our, our thoughts and prayers go out to Kyle XY star, <laughs> star Jamie Alexander. Yes. Since she got hurt. On the set so. of Thor 2. So, um, she's in Kyle XY? Yeah. Yeah, she's that's, female Kyle. That's why she originally came up, yeah. Kyle? She's, she's Jesse. Yeah. She's Jesse XX. She doesn't have a really? Y chromosome. Is that her name? Probably, yeah. I think so. <laughs> Jesse XX. Tell him about you. He knows exactly what her name is in the show. <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, shout out to Tim Long as well for winning the summer movie wager that I put on every year for the past two years. You're a dead band, Tim Long. Yeah. we. See was... if I ever bring the band damsel back on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... I'll have a link to our Twitter accounts, a link to our Twitter accounts on the show notes at MidwestFilmNerds.com. 
Music and art for our show is made for us by my brother, Mr. John, on Twitter. And uh, questions, comments, food for thought questions, whatever you want, can be sent to feedback at midwestfilmnerds.com. And uh, I think that's about it. So go watch a movie. We'll be right back.